Hello, welcome to today's episode of Remember the Aughts. I'm Courtney. And this is Tom. And in this podcast, we talk about everything from the 2000s, from Rockville Center to Montauk. And from the Motorola flip phone to the first iPhone. That's right. Looks like 2006. I have no idea. Was it that early? And they're tiny. If you ever look at like what smart, like even the iPhone 4. Yeah. You look at it now and you're like, how did people use this? Right. But it's not even like a bad design. It's just that phones now are unreasonably big. Yeah. No, they're very scary. I got a smartphone that was by LG. Mm-hmm. And it was bigger than my than my pant pocket. I couldn't hold it in my pants. That's insane. We it was went huge. From- Massive cell phones to tiny cell phones, and now they're on their way back. Yeah, it was the big thing in the early aughts to joke about cell phones being super tiny, like the size of a Barbie telephone. Yeah. I feel like that was a joke in everything, and now we've completely foregone that and gone in the completely opposite direction. I'm not going to lie, I do love the Motorola flip phone. I miss the uh, the chocolate. Oh, that was a good one, too. The chocolate was so cute, and it had Candyman by Christina Aguilera for the commercials. That's awesome. It was perfect. Do you remember ringback tones? Yes. Oh, my God. That's not a thing anymore, right? I mean, maybe somebody still has it, but... uh, Who does? The commercial for it was like, you can now have a ringback tone, and it would... Like, I remember in the commercials, like, all the pop music, and then one guy had stricken by Disturbed as his callback tone. Or Simple Plan. Oh, Simple Plan. Yeah. Yeah, the only guy who probably still has a ringback tone is probably the person who has not grown up from high school since that time. We know who he is. We know who he is. Probably still wears sort of Ed Hardy-esque graphic tees. Um, Today's episode is going to be something that's very dear to my heart. Yes. What are we covering today, Tom? Well, we're on our second part of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl miniseries. Woo! Mm -hmm. Miniseries! Yep, yep. And today we venture into um, a movie that I had, I, I just think the general rule is I haven't seen most of these movies until now. <laughs> and they happen to be my favorite movies. It's not, a, it was nothing against you. It's just at the, at the time of the aughts, I was an angsty, angsty horror kid who didn't want to have emotions. That's fair. This made, this movie made me have all of the emotions and I loved it for that. And it is, I will say, I love this movie. I watched it for the first time last week. It is a fantastic movie coming to you from the director, Michelle Gaudry. Did I say it right? Yeah, that was really good. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> we are talking about <laughs> Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you'd never imagine possible. This is a hoax, right? I assure you, no. Is there any risk of brain damage? It's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you'll miss. Courtney, will you please give us the plot to eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Well, Tom, um, I do believe that anybody who's seen this movie could tell you that Eternal Sunshine is a workplace drama. Is it? 
<laughs> I mean, the more I watched it, the more I was like, oh, these employees are not good at their job and it is highly unethical what they're doing with each other, what they're doing oh, with their yeah. clients. And I was like, oh my God, this is a messy business. This movie really does capture the beauty and the absurdity of a unhealthy work environment yeah. and addresses the taboos and breaking of social and workplace norms. Uh, we see that with uh, the main character played by Mark Ruffalo. Yes. Uh, and his, you know, and the uh, exchanges he has with Kristen Dunst and Elijah Wood mm -hmm. as they fail to perform a basic operation as a part of their duty. Yeah, and also just act highly unprofessional while dealing with the neurological safety of a patient. A patient who's already a lot under a lot of emotional distress, possibly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, our poor Joel Barish. Um, but yeah, so basically... As, this, as everybody does know this movie, this movie is about love and all of the trials and tribulations that come with it. Oh, yeah. It's a... I, what, how would I describe it? It's a sci-fi romantic comedy. Is See, that fair to say? I know a lot of people put it as a comedy, but growing up, I never really saw it as a comedy. Like, there are still funny moments in it, but is it a comedy because it has whimsical moments or is it a comedy because Jim Carrey's in it? You know, what's interesting is if I think if I had seen this in the odds, I would not classify it as a comedy. Okay. But I, and I think that part of the comedy label comes from the fact that you have, you know, Jim Carrey in it. But I think as an adult, I can say that comedy is only due to the term of the definition, kind of addressing the absurdities of the situation like, a good comedy isn't always necessarily laugh out loud funny, but more mm -hmm. of a highlight in the absurdity of this certain situation. Like, this movie's about love. It's about heartbreak and letting go. Yeah. But there's also, like, the addressing of just natural absurdities when that comes to with it, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, the more obvious examples is the, you know, the office space environment characters, <laughs> you know, and their shenanigans and their exploits. But also just highlighting how absurd sometimes love is and the things we do for it. Like, uh, you know, side tangent, sorry, tangent. Um, mm -hmm. I still side gotta note. find a noise for, gotta find a sound bite for our side notes. I have to take out the keyboard again. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I often love about comedy and horror is that they're both about addressing some kind of absurdity in our normal you know, you know, in our normal social norms, mm -hmm. but the it's just the difference is the emotional reaction to the absurdity. You know, we can laugh at something that's just absurd, or we can be, you know, something that breaks the norm can be terrifying. Right, and I think also in the same way that horror is often disregarded by the Academy Awards. I think that the sci-fi element and the comedic elements of this movie is also what made the Academies not take Eternal Sunshine seriously. Oh, it absolutely was, because it's a genre. Yeah. Like, they look at it da down as a genre film. Right. But there, this is far from, like, genre tropes. It's 
it's rather using the sci-fi elements to tell a very complicated story in a way that's easier to perceive. And I think there's a lot of genius in that. Right. And I think we talked about this after you watched the movie. If this was a true sci-fi film that focused predominantly on the sci-fi element, it would have been more about the technology. How did we come about this technology? What are we going to do with it? What is the government going to do with it? It would be the plot would be wrapped around something like that. Yeah. But the fact that in this case, it is essentially a medical procedure that people are having done to erase things that they don't want to remember focuses more on the emotional component versus the sci-fi technical component. The sci-fi is being used as a vessel to tell the story. Right. Like, could you tell the same story without it? Actually, it's hard because, like, you could tell a very similar story without the sci-fi. But what the sci-fi does is it allows us to actually play out the hypothetical, like, hey, if you actually could remove this memory, would you? Right. So that's where the sci-fi is used to kind of, it's the vessel that kind of allows further discussion of the topic and the themes in the movie. And that's what I think good genre does, is it just serves as a vessel to tell a very complicated story, like, some of the best, like, a good horror film would be a coming-of-age story that uses horror as a vessel to tell a hypothetical story. Right, and the sci-fi element to this movie is part of what made me love it so much. This is my favorite movie. We're covering my favorite movie now. And it's a fantastic movie. It's it's my favorite. It's still my favorite. And I still watch, every time I watch it, I see something new but part of the thing that I liked about it was the sci-fi element. I thought that it made the movie stand out. I thought that the way that they covered it was really great. They didn't make it the focus of the movie. And I was I just loved sci-fi as a kid. So having this movie that had it in a nuanced, sort of normalized into society way was part of the draw-in for me. And we should also mention the writer is uh, Charlie Kaufman. Is that how yes. you say it? Yeah, yeah. Charlie Kaufman who has also done very surreal, cerebral, cerebral movies like Being John Malkovich, Schenectady, New York. Adaptation. Yeah, yeah. So this is sort of his wheelhouse. And then you've got somebody like Michelle Gondry who brings in all of these real-life uh, special effects. Oh, yeah, this movie relies a lot on practical effects. And it's mm-hmm. beautiful. Like, there's the scenes I was stunned with, you know, the camera work. And just the editing itself is phenomenal. Yeah, and there are scenes... I remember before I had seen this movie, all I saw was the poster. And I remember okay. seeing Jim Carrey's head and then Kate Winslet's hair. And thinking, like, oh, I really like her hair. This is kind of interesting. It kind of looked dreamy and surreal. And then I watched... One day when I was sick at home from school, I watched Jim Carrey on Ellen talk about it. And they were talking specifically about the scene where he enters into the memory where he's talking to the doctor. And he is sitting in the chair in one place, but also he's at the door with Clementine saying he wants to call it off. They had to place the camera on a rotary, something that could rotate. And in that scene... Jim Carrey had to run from place to place and take off layers of clothes to be sitting down talking to the doctor in the memory and then he would have to run back over to the door with Clementine to be acting like 
Jim Carrey in his mind and saying he wants to call it off. And I had no idea what they were talking about when he was being interviewed on Ellen, but I just thought, I want to know what this is about, and I don't know anything else about it. Oh, yeah, no. Also, a big hats off to the cinematographer, Ellen. I feel like I'm going to say her last name bad. Kiras? She is a, she is the cinematographer involved with this movie, and she did a phenomenal job. And it was a hard job. Everything I read about this yeah. film just screams levels of difficulty that the union reps were very not happy about. Right. But um, we're we are really excited and kind of jumping into a lot of details. But Courtney, mm-hmm. would you give us a simple log line that would describe the plot of the movie? Okay. So basically. The movie is about a man who realizes his ex-girlfriend has erased him from her memory. And in response, he decides to erase her from his memory. Meanwhile, the memories go in reverse. So it starts at the end of their relationship where he's happy to be getting rid of her and happy to be erasing all of their memories. But then it goes back to the beginning and he realizes that he's losing what made the relationship so special and what he loved about her. So he tries to find a way to save her in his mind and keep her from getting, keep his memory from her getting destroyed through the entire racing process. Meanwhile, the coworkers and the doctor behind this medical procedure are just as flawed and just as messy as our two lead characters are. Yeah, that's something I was going to say. What I love <laughs> about this movie is this the side characters or the B plot are still thoroughly fleshed out. Like these are still yeah. really well-developed, good characters. There's no one-off note character that doesn't serve a purpose. Right. And every actor in it plays their character so perfectly. Even his friends, Jane Adams and David Cross are great. Oh, they were hysterical. They're so great. And I feel like even they showed a different kind of love where you would think, oh, they're still together, so they have it figured out, whereas Joel and Clementine, our main characters, didn't have it figured out. But you still see the friends arguing and getting mad at each other and disagreeing a lot. And I liked that component of it, that they were also just as messy as anybody else. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's just... And you're saying, like, you know, we he wants to change his mind because it's removing the best parts of that relationship, but it's also like removing parts of himself. Mm -hmm. Like there's a throwaway line towards the beginning when he first talks to the doctor about the procedure, he asks, will it hurt? And a doctor says, well, it is technically brain damaged. Right. right. So you will feel like you are hung over in the morning. Like it's just so casually nonchalant, but it, yeah, it, it really is this removal of the self. Right. Or this comment that, Mary, the office administrator, says on a phone call when he's trying to figure out what this place is, and she says, well, I'm sorry, ma'am, you just can't have the procedure done three times in one month. It's just not our policy. So it's also the abuse of hanging on to, like, instead of doing the work to grow as a person after experiencing something painful, just hoping that this thing will take it all away. So, Tom, this was your first time watching the movie. Yes. What did you know about the movie going into it? Very little. Okay. Honestly, I knew about the removal of the memories. Okay. I knew, I envisioned a lot more sleeping. 
Fair. But other than that, I really had no idea what to expect going into this. I just knew it was a you know fairly popular movie. It was a fairly well-received movie. And I knew it was your favorite movie. Yeah. But other than that, I really knew nothing. Okay. The first time I watched it, which was, I think, 14, I had no idea what this movie was about. So I had to watch it multiple times to figure it out. But I just knew that I was really into it. And once I figured it out, it became my breakup movie. It became my I'm homesick and I've got nothing to do movie. It became a really big part of me and Joe's relationship. Can I get mushy for a second? Yes, please get mushy for a second. Okay. Okay, so I started giving this movie out to people as sort of a moniker of what I thought I could trust in them. So basically anybody in my life, I would hand it to them. And if they loved the movie, I'd be like, okay, great, you're good in my book. And if not, I was like, well, you don't get this movie. So, but when Joe and I were 15, we were dating other people. I lent him this movie. And then I asked him the next day, what did you think of Eternal Sunshine? And he said, oh my God, I loved it. And in that minute I thought, oh, we're gonna be together forever. Oh, that's adorable. Even though we were dating completely different people, I had no reason to think that. I still was like, oh, this guy is my soulmate. That's incredible. Thank you. So that's my mushy moment. <laughs> mushy moment. Mushy moment. You yeah, should have a mushy moment. Um, Mush. Yes. So, yeah, this movie's always been very emotionally anchored to me. And I always really loved Clementine because, like we've talked about before, when they're so much hypersexuality in the early aughts being somebody who didn't want to show a lot of skin who didn't feel comfortable showing a lot of skin having a leading lady like clementine was such a breath of fresh air because she was so captivating and so magnetizing in a neon orange hoodie yes yeah and i think it's fair when we talk about clementine because i mean this is the manic pixie dream girl series and something i noticed is a lot of the issues I had with the previous movie and the representation of the female lead in that movie. Here, we see a character who, it's still, even though it's still, we're still watching this movie through the dream perspective of the main character, Joel, Clementine still serves in having a lot more agency and a more defined personality. Like, we know who she is, and there's a turnaround. Like, it doesn't just, it's not just a movie where we see all the faults of her and side with Joel. It's a movie that breaks down the very complex and difficult manner of two individuals being together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that when we look up Manny Pixie Dream Girl online, usually Kate Winslet playing Clementine Krasinski is the main image for that. But the yeah. thing is, I think that she actually is more than the Manic Pixie Dream Girl stereotype which is why I did sort of struggle with the term growing up when it became so popular and her figure being attached to it because if anything we don't see her just magically appear and bestow life upon the dull quiet banal protagonist we actually see her making his life a lot harder in most cases of the situation and 
but also seeing how lovely she is and how complicated she is and how her flaws have real life consequences. It's not just her being whimsical and sporadic and theatrical. It's that she got drunk and she dented his car. Yeah, she did a number on his car. Yeah. But we can also throw it back at him. He Mm -hmm. is, you know, we see him as hesitant and reserved and she kind of serves as the contradiction, you know, the the counterpoint where she's a lot more expressive than out there. But he is also, he's past progressive. Yeah. He's also um, projecting. He has a lot of guilt of his own that he's projecting onto her. Also, he'll love her for being so wild and outspoken, but then he'll be a snob at the same time. And in his recording of when he decided to get rid of her, he says like, oh, she sounds so uneducated when she says library. And it's like, this is the person that you fell in love with. Everything about her, you know? And he also gets annoyed with all of her you know, he's like, you know, what's edgy about this? You know, everything has to be a big thing. And I, it's, it, it's very real. Mm-hmm. Like you feel it, like you feel that past regressive anger, you feel that resentment. And it's like, oh, shit, this is very real. And it's mean. And it's not something that you want to be or you want to sympathize with someone for. Right. But it paints the picture of this very complicated relationship. Mm-hmm. between two individuals and it's not even up to us to decide if it's a good relationship or not nor does i do i think the movie even gives you an answer no and i don't think it's looking for one person to be the bad guy or the good guy and i think you know she makes some very bad choices the last day of their relationship but so does he he says some really awful things to her yeah the part where he says oh, I know that you slept with somebody tonight because that's how you get someone to like you. It's just a that's punch rough. to the gut. Yeah. yeah. And I, that's where I mean like by projection because from what I gather when we watch the movie, uh, I know we didn't get entirely into the plot yet, but there's a, he is, he we gather from the movie that he was with someone else before named Naomi. Yes. And he... You don't see it because the story is told in a non-linear fashion, which is kind of genius for the whole element. But point being is that there might be this potential thread where he was with Naomi when he met Clementine. Right. So in doing that, he holds on to that guilt and insecurity and is now projecting it onto her. Because then he says that line, you know, I know that's how you get people to like you. We don't know if she did or not. I'm assuming she didn't. But I also assume that she didn't. That is more projection because if he was capable of doing that, then he is going to live with that guilt and fear that maybe someone else will do it to him. Yeah, I think it might also be self-protection in the sense that if she did do that with somebody, if she did sleep with somebody, he's got a way to hurt her hard, harder than how she hurt him. Yeah. Yeah. And you could see why he wants to take it back and why that's... You could see why this is a memory somebody would want to erase. Because he said it and then is immediately like, shit, I shouldn't have said that. And we all have those fights, as hard as they are. So not only is it a punch to the gut because it's an awful thing to say, it's a punch to the gut to the viewer because it's so relatable. And there's this audible cringe after he says it. 
it's yeah no this movie i think whereas our previous film garden state is kind of much more surface level romanticized view of a you know the alternative relationship Mm -hmm. this is much more like a deep analysis of complicated individuals and i know even before we were talking about you know you know uh kate winslet shows up as when you type in manic pixie dream girl right but when this movie was written and made that trope i don't even think had entered the public conscious yet and i think that Whereas Garden State might be more reliant on trying to fix the main protagonist's issues with the dream girl. This movie is a lot more of an analysis of the breakdown of very difficult, painful relationships. And and asking the hypothetical, if you could remove that memory, would you? Right, exactly. And also this movie does have the girl who becomes the creation of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl... Uh, Kirsten Dunst. She's going to yes. be the girl in our next movie, Elizabeth Town. I was going to say crossover. Crossover. <laughs> the Manic Pixie Dream Girl cinematic universe. Yes. She becomes a flight attendant after she leaves her job as the office administrator for Lacuna Inc. Shared universe, maybe? Maybe. I love this movie. Um, also, this is a very small detail, but I think what adds to the characters is their names aren't the easiest to spell. No. I like that detail a little bit. Clementine Krasinski, Dr. Mirzwiak, Mary Spavo. I like that they add a little bit of detail to the names. Yeah. It just adds a little bit more. Now, I wanted to ask, because I know that this, this, this script in this movie was, or at least the title, Mm-hmm. Is from a poem. Yeah. The uh, poem. I do you know the name of the poem? I forget the name of the poem, but I've read part of it. It's a very long piece. Yeah, I think it's Elogia to Albert by yes. Alexander Pope. Yes. Yes. Yeah, sorry, I can't say names very good. No, it's okay. <laughs> uh, Eloisa to Abelard, I think. Ah, that makes more sense. (laughs) I am bad with names. Apparently, the original name for the screenplay was 18 words long. What? Yeah, it says on the Wikipedia, Kaufman's original name for the screenplay was 18 words long, as he had wanted a title that you couldn't possibly fit on a marquee. I think Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is enough. Yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful name. Ugh, that just kind of, that adds to the whole, I want to talk about Michelle Gordry for a little bit, if, yes. I, if you, if I will. Um, yes, I know quite a bit about him, except for what you mentioned. Yeah. So I can give a quick summary of what I read, but if you, okay. you probably know way more than I do. All I know about I, his work I, and his style. Yeah. Okay. I gathered that he grew up in Versailles. I think uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, he wanted to be an painter or an inventor. And in the 80s, he entered an art school in Paris where he could develop his graphic skills. And he met some friends and he was in a pop rock band called Oi Oi. That's amazing. So from my experience with Michel Gondry, I watched a lot of his music videos as a kid. And we actually grew up with a lot of the music videos that he directed. Really? I didn't know he did some music videos. Yeah, he did a bunch of them with Daft Punk, Beck, The White Stripes. Um, I believe, oh, fell in love with a girl. 
he did okay. that music video with them. And I believe he did the Denial Twist, which is a really interesting music video for the White Stripes. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, so he's done a lot of really cool work. I always liked his style because he wanted everything to be in person and to be by hand. Yeah. So I appreciated that extra step to put in that work to make it feel real and have that tactile sensation rather than relying on CGI or green screen. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's kind of part of his whole thing. He's Even for this movie, I read he drew a lot of influence from French New Wave, mm-hmm. which in itself, when we look up the definition of French New Wave, mm-hmm. which I did, is a rejection of the era's traditional filmmaking conventions in favor of experimentation and spirit of iconolism. That I said that wrong. <laughs> I can all I could I'm just gonna say rejection of the era's traditional filmmaking conventions in favor of experimentation. Nice. New approaches to editing, visual style, narrative, as well as engagement with the social and political upheavals of the time. Yeah, I would say that this next movie, The Science of Sleep, is a little bit more exploratory and less narrative than Eternal Sunshine. Okay. But it was my introduction to Gael Garcia Bernal and Charlie Gainsbourg, both of which I, I love. I love them. Yeah, so I suggest if you're interested in his style at all, that that would be the next movie to check out. Okay. Um, like you were saying, mm-hmm. there's minimal CGI, and like there are scenes that I thought were CG, mm-hmm. but like when you told me that it wasn't, and I look into it, like the when he's dreaming and the cars are just kind of shifting around him. Yeah. That was all practically done. Yeah. Like, that's incredible. And I remember I mentioned it earlier, but he put the cinematographer through a lot. I know. Because uh, in this movie, we have forced perspectives, hidden spaces, spotlighting, unsynchronized sound, split focus, a lot of different elements used to kind of tell this magnificent dreamlike story. Yeah, so... As a teenager, you've got this sort of surreal, dreamlike way of telling a story, and then paired with Tim Burton at the time, those were my two big loves for movies at the time. Like, the two of them being so big at the time really sort of created the framework for what I was interested in as far as movies and artwork goes. Yeah, Yeah. very expressionate forms of art rather than being based in realism yeah using a like and it's interesting you say that because a lot of tim burton especially in his early works a lot of that artwork and design is influenced very much so from german expressionism Mm -hmm. so we have you have this bit of french new wave and then german expressionism to lead to this where the art and the cinematography and all the means and stuff of the movie is used to kind of tell more expression than it is realism Mm mm-hmm and that's definitely a huge part of this movie. Like you mentioned before, like even having to use like different techniques. Like I know that the, one of the problems the cinematographer had was uh, because there was a lot of improvisation mm-hmm. and a lot of a uh, lot of different direction. They had to have like two handheld cameras at all times to shoot, make sure they captured all the action. Yeah, because there was a lot of different just. improvisation different forms of expression it's just very difficult shooting situations that they were put in yeah that's the thing is like sometimes it's 
harder to work around a problem than just rely on green green screen or CGI. One of the things that I thought was really sweet was the scene where he puts her into his childhood memories and it's them walking as kids but they're talking. They literally had Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet carrying a camera and microphone. Really? And they were recording the dialogue as they were filming what would be the child versions of their characters. That's adorable. It's so sweet. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I feel like what was really important to this movie was really capturing the emotional authenticity to any of the situations that the characters were in, whether it was breaking up, having an awkward date at the restaurant, or being kids and going through all of the childhood issues of being a kid. It's just, it's a really thoughtful movie. I love just how sappy and emotional it is. We've talked, like, it's hard to talk about this movie without talking about how much we're gushing over it. Yeah. (laughs) But I want to make sure, let's cover the plot of the movie. It's a lot easier to talk about a movie when it's cringy from the aughts, but this one, it's still holds so well to me and actually to watch it and to watch it from a different lens this time around like to see it so many times and still find something new about it I think is a sign of a good movie from the beginning of this movie Joel Barish our main character Jim Carrey wakes up and he is noticing some things are off but it's not as glaring as you think it would be by the trajectory of the movie he finds it weird that there is a dent on his car and blames whoever is parked next to him and then he just decides to take a random trip to Montauk and by his standards at this time in the movie he's meeting a girl on the beach that is sort of just around wherever he's going and he says, why do I fall in love with anybody who gives me just a little bit of attention? Yeah. Like, we see him, because he was supposed to go to work, and he's like, no, I'm just going to go. He just bails and goes to Montauk, because something in his mind is like, go to the house in Montauk. Right. And he just says, fuck it, I'm just going to go to Montauk. Which was weird, because I also didn't realize that this took place not only on Long Island, but he starts off in Rockville Center. Yes, this is the truest Long Island film. Which he, which is five minutes away from Floral Park. Right. This movie is, I mean, that's part of the reason why I love it too, is it's very Long Island. And my mom was the one who was like, Rockville Center is where you had your Sweet 16. Yes. I I remember that. Yeah. And, you know, Montauk is such a big Long Island thing. So they shoot this between New York City, Montauk, and Yonkers, um, Fun fact, before we get into more of the plot, they had plans for using a motorized bed in some scenes, and what they did in the middle of shooting, like on a night that they were goofing around, was Jim Carrey took the motorized bed and drove it on the LIE and was doing donuts around a gas station. Are you kidding me? And just saying things like... I want a pecan pie, like Elvis Presley. He's just saying that over and over again and doing the Elvis Presley dance moves. That's incredible. So somewhere out there on the LIE, 
Jim Carrey was just driving a motorized bed. And there, you know what it is to add to it. There is, I mean, maybe because we grew up further west, we grew up closer to the city. But there is this like otherworldly dream quality when you think of like places like Montauk or you know all the way out near the beaches. Yeah, exactly. When he's on the train, like I, I remember, I don't remember what station it is, but he at a station you see this girl and she's wearing the the orange hoodie. I mean, orange jacket, right? And they're sitting on the train. He's heading back to Rockville Center, and that's when we get introduced to Clementine, the female lead of the movie, played by. Kate Winslet. At this point in the movie, what I love about Kate Winslet as Clementine is that the more he clearly doesn't want to talk to her, the closer she physically gets to him to the point that she's practically on top of him when he's like, I am working on something, I'm writing. And then she just punches him in the shoulder and is like, okay, see you around, buddy. And he's like, why did you do that? Yeah. I, I loved that sort of tension between the two of them. And what was interesting is that I remember watching going, this is a little weird. Why is this guy who's just, you know, he's being kind of, sh- you know, cold and just kind of, you know, shove off. He's this girl keeps persisting. And it does make sense as we get to the movie. But yeah, they she does mention he she works at Barnes and Noble. He gives her a ride after they get to the train station. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that when she says, no jokes about my name, he's like, I don't know any. And she's like, yes. oh, please, really? And he's like, no, I, I've never heard of it before. And she's like, how do you not know? Oh, my darling, oh, my darling. And then when they show the meeting at the beginning, he says, oh, my darling, oh, my darling. But also the memory of him being bathed in the kitchen sink by his mom. She's singing, oh, my darling, oh, my darling. Yeah, that's, that's the beautiful thing about this movie. There's so many intricacies and complexities to the idea of our memories. Mm-hmm. Also, this movie was a large reason why I wrote and drew everything. Because I just loved that he would write every thought that was coming out of his mind and doodling. So... That's a large part. I mean, I already carried a notebook around and was always drawing, but this is what made me continue to do that on as in like into my teenager years. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. It's just that one of those sense. things that influenced me. Yeah. So in the semi-linear, not very linear storyline, right. they have they have some drinks, but he's like, no, 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 I got to go. And she gives him his number, her number, he gets home, he calls her, everything seems all good and fine, and then it seems like they dated, mm-hmm. but then turns out that she left him without saying anything. Right, they start this whole first part of the movie as what you think is the beginning and is this new blossoming relationship, but actually it's already the end of the movie. They've already raced an entire relationship together. And they after they start this whole scene with like this cute will they, won't they, they're already so smitten with each other. Um, one thing that I noticed too was the part that where Elijah Wood's character, Patrick, knocks on the window of the car door of the car door and he asks Joel, like, what are you doing here? 
it makes so much more sense in the context of the entire film because at that point oh, yeah. he had already erased both of their memories was manipulating his past relationship with her to have a relationship with Clementine and the whole time he's just like I have no idea what you're talking about and he's like can I help you with something and he's like oh, I don't know what you Elijah need Elijah Wood's character is a real piece of shit I'm just gonna say that right here he plays it so well yeah, I love Elijah Wood, but God, is that character so slimy? And I think, like... He's so slimy. In the aughts, we still don't like him. Like, in the aughts, we're like, oh, he's the bad guy. Oh, he was still definitely a dick when I watched this but movie I, in the aughts. But I think in the modern perspective, we look at it and we're like, he's... That's... I would say that that is, um... I don't want to say the word, but... I know you're, what you're saying. It, it's bordering. It definitely is. I would say, because it's like... If you're able to work an entire scenario around and manipulate it like that to get something, it is very much... Yeah, let's not say the word, but yeah, that's where I'm hinting. Yeah, it's also taking complete advantage of abusing someone's mental state because she clearly... We don't know what happens to other people who have been through this process. Obviously, other people keep coming back to Lacuna Inc. to get more surgeries done or more procedures done. But there's also this fallout from the procedure for Clementine where she's having a mental breakdown after having the surgery or the procedure and she has no idea why she's so stressed out, why she's so anxious, why she feels so terrible. And he's using this as an opportunity to get closer to her. Yeah, he's quite literally using not only her memories, but Joel's memories Mm -hmm. as a means to solidify because he's trying to fill that hole. Right. He's trying to fill that gap that has been created by the memory erasing procedure. Also, I know this is a little bit further into the movie, but how sick is it when Mark Ruffalo's character invites Kristen Dunst's character over and they're basically dating at that point, and the whole time Patrick is like, yeah, I should invite my girlfriend over. So he's basically inviting his girlfriend over to the house of her ex-boyfriend, who he's currently having erased. Yeah, there's a, and I think one of the beautiful things about this movie, when we talk about memories and like just the natural complexities of this memory erasing process, like you mentioned it before when with Oh My Darling, Mm -hmm. one of the issues that comes up when you have this hypothetical is that so much of who we are for better and for worse is tied to the people we share time with, that if you erase even the negatives, you're erasing a lot of who you are. Right. If you if you choose to erase the memories because of a person in them, then you're also erasing the potential growth that you had from that experience. Yeah. And also creating some unexplained trauma, which we start seeing with Clementine, where she's freaking out and she has no idea why. Yeah. But I mean, even the fact that, like, Oh My Darling goes all the way back to his childhood. Yeah. But it has ties to Clementine. So by erasing Clementine, are you now also erasing that memory? Right, exactly. And I think that's what ends up happening to him in the movie, is that when he tries to hide her in these other memories, he's also sacrificing these other memories because eventually they find him and still erase it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just with life in general and relationships in general a lot of who we are gets tied to certain things and I can say from experience when you have a breakup like that a lot of things do get tied to it unfortunately and part of the beauty in growing and rebuilding is when you come to a point where you can 
enjoy that part of your life again and think, even if you think back to the relationship, you think from it on a healthier level rather than having the pain. Yeah, and I think that's what the exact contrast is when they end the current scene of this sort of budding relationship that you think is new and you think is the beginning of the film and they cut right to him crying and just sobbing over his car and listening to the mixtape that they probably listened to together and I think even plays a couple of times in the background yes it's Beck covering everybody's gotta learn sometime and I love that song so much it's so good that scene really hit me because I was like, yeah, I know that feeling. Yes. There's always some artist or some song yeah. that takes me a long time to get over. That scene is so universally felt. Yeah. Like you watch it and you're just like, yes, this is me. I am Joel Barish. For the for context to give my own uh, update on my own life, I am very happy and very much enjoying typo negative again. I'm very <laughs> happy and proud about that. <laughs> that's good i'm so glad to hear that typo negative is one of my favorite bands and i love them and there's nothing that can take that away from me (laughs) good good i'm so glad to hear that tom but you're right it's that thing where when you share this thing with a person that you love you're letting them into something that is important to you and that's what i did with this movie to different people in my life i showed it to them and their response to it either opened me up to them or it closed me off a little bit more. So having that between me and Joe became a very special part of our relationship. And we always wanted to take a trip to Montauk and always planned on taking the train to Montauk, but we just never did it because it's a very long train ride. But it's like a two and a half hour drive. It's it's such a long drive. And then I think if you don't catch the bullet train that they built for Montauk just a few years ago, you're on the train the whole day. Yikes. Yeah. So we only just finally took a, a sporadic trip to Montauk last year for our anniversary. And I'm really glad we got to do that while things were still open last That's summer. incredible. Yeah. I'm so glad. Yeah. So, uh, so at this point, he's crying in his car, and he throws out the tape. And then you realize something's not right. And the music even implies it. The original score by John Bryan, which is amazing, even implies something feels off. He's using these weird little bass tones. And you could see the little dots on the side of Jim Carrey's head. So you're thinking, okay, something's not right. And then they start to go into sort of the, they start going into the memories of him getting ready to erase her, him realizing that she's ignoring him. And he talks to his friends about going to Barnes and Noble to see her. And she acts like she's never met him before. And she's already dating another guy. Yeah. But like not even acts, like legitimately does not know him. Right. Exactly. She's not pretending she looks at him and is like, okay, let me know if you need anything, sir. And then she goes to kissing her boyfriend, which is highly unprofessional, but... Which is Elijah Wood. Yeah. I love what they do with um, his face in Jim Carrey's memories, because he's figuring out during the whole erasure process that this is the same person who is sleeping with the love of his life, but he's never actually seen his face. 
So the moments yeah. that he's trying to manipulate his memory into showing him a face, it just won't allow it. I love that aspect of it. Yeah, I was gonna say, it's another genius part of this movie is just the blurred faces. and Because there is, I think, inadvertently, this movie, like, it's very thought out and well-written, but there is some elements of this about dream and and the very limited knowledge we have about dreams that are just really spot on with this movie. Mm-hmm. Like blurred faces. Like if you're erasing somebody, because our brains actually can't invent a face. Like when you dream, you can't actually create a face that you've never seen before. So every person in your dreams is actually the face of someone you've seen in real life. Right. Even if it's you walk past them on the street. Yes. That memory is still retained for dreams later on. Yeah. So, and that's a beautiful element of this movie. You see a lot of times, especially, like, either a little more subtly, like, in the background, Mm -hmm. with certain things being removed or changed, or just flat out a character's face being melded or Mm -hmm. non-existent, there is this real element of the deterioration of your memory. Right, especially when he tries to re-enter the memory that he already erased and their faces are these sort of deformed blobs, which actually spooked me out a lot as a kid. It's a little spooky. It's a little scary to be looking at this memory that you experience and then their faces are completely gone. They get to the phase of the movie where you're trying to work out, okay, he is finding out why this person is ignoring him. His friends give him the letter from Lacuna Inc. saying Clementine Krasinski has erased Joel Barish from her memory. Please do not mention their relationship to her ever again. Then he goes to the doctor's office to find out what's going on. And that's where you start to see all these other people who want to erase different aspects of their life. Somebody wants to erase a dog. Somebody comes in with a bunch of trophies, which makes you wonder, are they trying to forget their own, like, failed hopes or maybe their child's failed hopes? I don't know. Yeah, or I I saw it as they want to forget the loss of a child. Oh, that too. That's how I took it. I would, I think that's maybe the one scenario where I would completely understand, but you can't erase that grief. Like, your body would still be experiencing that loss, yeah. even if you erase the memories. Well, even, because that's the brilliant moment, like you mentioned earlier, but Kristen Dunst, who plays the, she plays kind of like the, the... I, I like to call her the office administrator, because I don't think it's fair to just call her the receptionist yes. or the secretary. She plays yeah. the office receptionist, and she, um, she's on the phone, and she's like, no, you can't get this procedure a third time. Like, yeah. even the space of the office, it's tiny, it's cramped, it doesn't, it looks more like a bad chiropractor's office. Yeah. Yet it's somehow the office of a guy performing memory wiping procedures. There mm-hmm. is this idea that it's playing this, like, almost, like, black market idea of, and, you know, but it's full. Like, people are there to get rid of this, you know, get rid of certain memories. I think that's what sets it into normalcy, though, because if it was in this very high state-of-the-art facility with white walls, automatic doors, you know, nice, polished, clean floors, I think that would give in too much to the sci-fi aspect. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. It really adds to that, like, there's something, this is, like, 
it's giving you the image that like we'd like to think and trust in you know in the medical field and science but what is you know is this to be trusted it's not entirely ethical no not even including the actions of the employees oh yeah let's let's get into these group of characters oh mark ruffalo my favorite favorite good boy who he's kind of i love him and he does some bad things he's clearly irresponsible but he means well like he's he's kind of like he's not elijah wood no thank goodness and he's also not the doctor who's also kind of an asshole not kind of is an asshole i think of the four people I think that, one, Mary Spavo gets hurt the most. Yes. For sure. She absolutely gets hurt the most. Right. But then I think a really close second is Mark Ruffalo's character. Because I think he's kind of like chaotic good. Yeah. Because everything he does, he's doing his job. He doesn't want to hurt this girl that he likes. And he still does a little bit well by his friend who doesn't deserve it. Well, I think there's even a point because... um. With the plot, you know, they, mm-hmm. they perform there. He gets the procedure done. They go to his house at night and they start to perform this procedure. But there's a moment where when things start going wrong, Mark Ruffalo is like, he's almost more like willing to say, well, what happens happens. I can't fix it. But then when the doctor comes in, he deliberately gives our, you know, Joel a sedative. Yeah. Like, whereas I think with Mark Ruffalo, if something is naturally fighting back against this process, I think Mark Ruffalo's character is more inclined to be like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, this is, you know, something's off. But then the doctor, and we learn later why he's so adamant about this procedure, he just gives him a sedative. And that was like a heart-wrenching part of the movie because I'm like, maybe he will wake up. Maybe he will fix this. But then you see him get the sedative. And you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Also, the doctor is played perfectly by Tom Wilkinson. Yes. He's an amazing actor. Uh, this guy's hilarious in real life. He won an award for playing Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers. He's a British man, and he totally forgot the name of his character. Did he really? Yeah. He. Um, it was the HBO special John Adams with Paul Giamatti, and Tom Wilkinson wins the award for playing Benjamin Franklin. And he's like, yeah, I don't know this uh, Benjamin. Uh, yeah, this guy, this bloke. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is like what Britain has wanted for centuries. That's incredible. A British person to just come in, win an award for playing a founding father and just disregarding it completely. Um, Tom Wilkinson is an amazing actor. He's very good in this. Um, also, side note. When I was a teen and I watched this movie a lot, my mom had to explain to me that Kate Winslet and Tom Wilkinson were British. And I was like, they have accents? <laughs> and she was funny. like, yes, they do. And I was like, no, Kate Winslet's from New York. She's like, no, she's not. And I was like, no, she has to be from New York. That's that's her accent. That's her voice. No. Nope. So I had no idea. But so, yeah, so you've got this crew of coworkers where Mark Ruffalo... He does kind of play the good boy, even though it's in the loosest of sense. I, I agree with you. I think that 
if Joel Barish woke up and it was just with his character, he would have been like, well, okay, we can't continue with the procedure. Um, I'm really sorry about this. Maybe you can set up another day where we can do it again and finish the job. And then Joel Barish could say no, and that's it. Yeah. But because the doctor needs to instill that this procedure is valid and worth it, he needs to drive it home and make sure that Joel Barish goes back to sleep. Which, as a person who has had nightmares and sleep paralysis and, like, hates these kinds of situations, I would hate waking up, not being able to move my body, and then being sedated back into oh, sleep. Oh, my God. That's an absolute nightmare. That was the nightmare. Yeah. I had that fear watching him, like, oh, God, I can't. Because right. especially when he, you see him open his eyes and he's just looking. Yeah. And, and he can't he, move. And he just has, like, the tear rolling down his eye. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, he, so Mark Ruffalo's character, also at this point, Mark Ruffalo is sort of the indie golden pony boy. Like, he is the guy that you get for all of these roles in indie movies. Yes. This was his, if you look up his IMDb credentials, it's a lot of movies like this at this time. So I think he's perfectly cast. And then you've got Elijah Wood, who plays Patrick. Patrick. Baby boy. What do we say about Patrick that I haven't already said? I know. He's a scumbag. And I don't know. I I think, you know, he he deserves the relationship falling apart. Also, if you are asked to perform a procedure on somebody and enter their home, don't steal their panties. Yeah, that should be... Just don't. That should just be like an understood rule of thumb. Right. And then over comes Mary Spavo, the office administrator, and she's acting much more casual now. She's not acting professional. She's kind of goofing off. They take his liquor. They're drinking beers. They smoke weed. They have sex on top of his bed i think or just like around him yeah they had sex somewhere they had sex somewhere in his home while he's going through this mental procedure and then when things start to go awry in the memory process when joel realizes that he doesn't want to go through this anymore and he wants to call it off uh high and drunk kirsten dunst just starts saying we should call howard we should call Howard. And I do partially agree with her because they are performing a process that is obviously getting stuck in a rut and it's to do with the guy's brain. And although she's high, she's not wrong when she says he could wake up half-baked. Yeah. 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 Like, it's partially because she wants to see the boss, but it's also partially because this is a person's brain and they shouldn't be screwing around with it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I do think she's right in that sense, but we all know the real reason why she wants their boss to come over. Yes, we learn that fairly soon, why she wants the boss to come over. Right. And as the memories start getting more complicated and Joel's trying to hide Clementine in different places, it does become sort of a decimation of just life. When, he, when she says, hide me under shame or humiliation... 
and they start going through all these different embarrassing scenarios. I'm just like, oh my god, like, this is so growing up and being a teenager or being a kid and the kids telling you to do something that you don't want to do. Like, it's so relatable. Yeah. Or the moment of, like, <laughs> the yeah. memory of the mom catching a master. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> And also just the way that Jim Carrey shifts his acting mentality to whatever age the memory throws him into. Yeah. Like he's really good. Yeah. <laughs> it was One so minute. Yeah. <laughs> it's so hilarious watching an adult Jim Carrey being a teenager getting caught in masturbating. Yeah. To a comic book that was probably an R crumb comic book or something. Yeah, that yeah. was, uh, I forgot what the comic book was. It was very Robert Crumb-esque. Yeah. She's, I mean, Clementine's just laughing, and he just, like, turns over in the bed and is like, shut up! But, um, I love the scene where he's underneath the table. Yeah. And she's, like, a friend of his mom's. And even the technical trick for that I thought was really sweet where they created a table that was really, really small up front and then really, really big in the back. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize that. That's genius. Yeah, it's a perspective-skewed set. So it looks like... So, so Clementine can easily lean against the table where it's at its smallest, and then the further you walk back into the scene, you become Joel Barish's height, and you can hide under the table. That's awesome. Yeah. It was nicely done. Oh, yeah. But so, as the memories continue, and the doctor continues to find him, they realize there's no way to avoid the rest of the process, and they just decide to enjoy what is the actual scene of them first meeting. It's not the beginning of the movie, that's the end. And they show you the first scene of where they met, which was still Montauk. And she still has her orange sweater on. Yes. Yeah. But what's interesting is that we learn that potentially this is when he meets her for the first time in Montauk. Mm-hmm. And they, it's during the day, I think, when they first meet. Yeah. But they recreate that memory. Because I think it's like you said, they decide just to, they can't avoid the memories being wiped. So just enjoy it for the time being. Mm-hmm. I don't want to jump the gun and get too close to because it's my favorite scene. Mm-hmm. When they actually explore the house at night. I love when she says, I'm ruthless at the moment. <laughs> I, I don't know why. It's just such a great line. Yeah. And she's, like, trying to, like, find something in that house. But, um... Oh, yeah, when they're exploring the house and he's just like, I gotta leave. Yeah. And I think because chronologically speaking, he's still maybe with his ex Naomi at the time he says I don't know if this is the beginning of the movie or at that point but he says I'm thinking of getting back no in the beginning of the movie which is technically the end yes he says I am seeing someone but then at the end end which is the beginning of the movie he says I think I should get back together with Naomi yeah, I think, and you know what the interesting thing I, I realized about that is that the way the movie's edited 
kind of alludes and reveals this to us. But if, especially when you look at the movie chronologically, the reason why he's thinking back to Naomi that way is because by that point, the, all the memories of Clementine are gone. Right. And the thing about that is that, you know, he feels lonely. His brain is slightly damaged from this procedure. And there's just this yearning. And without all the memories of Clementine, he's seeking back to the last time he felt comfort. And that would be Naomi. I also wonder if Naomi is the tie to remembering Clementine or being just a little bit closer to her because you don't see in the movie because they deleted the scenes. You don't see any of his memories with Clement um, with Naomi being erased when they break up because he's dating Clementine. Yeah. So perhaps because his breakup with Naomi is so tied to the beginning of his relationship with Clementine, that that's the closest memory he can get to with some bit of Clementine in it. That's a good that's a good idea. I can see that. Yeah, and I do I, I do think it's fine that they didn't include Naomi in it. I do like that they got Ellen Pompeo to play Naomi. That seems like a good fit to me. Yeah. But so when they're at the house, and this was also side note about the technical parts of this. Yes, yeah. I talked about it briefly with you before this, but the way they I did, didn't know this. Yeah. I didn't know about this thing. I okay. believe that the house is real. Like the house is actually there in Montauk. But because there's a part where the water level is rising to the walkway and to the house, they had to mm -hmm. build like a mock set of the front of the house to allow for the water to rise. Uh, there was an entire team designated for the role. But uh, you know, let me see where I have it written down. The ocean washing away the house in Montauk. The production team accomplishes by building the corner of a house on the beach and allowing the tide to rise. However, actually getting this effect to work was incredibly difficult. So uh, Gordry just fired the entire team in charge of this and just had his production team and the actors have the set in water to film the scene. Right, in this, February, mm -hmm. in the cold. And this is another one of those moments where the union reps were definitely like, you can't do this. Yeah. Do not do this to your employees. No. But it didn't work out. Still not okay. <laughs> but it is a beautiful scene. And there is this confliction with the characters. Because it's, it's the last remaining bit of the old memory. But they're still in a way creating. Because there's this beautiful line. And I love this line so much. And this line hit me in such a way. Mm -hmm. where he says to her, he's outside the house and he's saying, I think I got somewhere to be. Or I don't think I, I don't think I should be here. Yeah. And she says, come back and make up a goodbye at least. Let's pretend we had one. And that hit me so hard. Yeah, it, it's that one. And also for me, before that, when they do meet each other at the beginning of the day and she says... This is it, Joel. It's going to be gone soon. It's just so, you know, accepting their fate and what is going to happen. And even just, you know, come back and make up a goodbye at least. You know, it's in their brains. And this is when, you know, when you think about all those times you have a breakup and you want to talk to the person and 
you have an idea in your head of how you want it to go versus what the likelihood of it actually being that is slim to none. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, in reality, closure, there's no real way to actually have the perfect closure. I don't think it really exists. And no. I think one of the hardest things, especially not only just a breakup, but a breakup where you're just cut off, which essentially happens to Joel when, you know, when they erase each other's memories. Yeah, quite literally, quite he is literally. cut off from Clementine's life. I think there's both a reflection in that this is not real. You'll never really get this type of closure. But also, I think in this idea that the only way to heal is to allow yourself to because like he, this is after all the because like you said like the memories go in reverse mm-hmm. the most likely you're going to remember is the pain the anguish the hatred the everything then you're going to get to the good memories and you don't want it to let go you don't want that to go away and sometimes it's easier to hold on to that anger and hatred to move on rather than the good memories holding on to the anger and hatred works out very well for the first few months right <laughs> it doesn't work out later but long term uh, no is not as helpful i was gonna say and that it is poetic that it this ends with the beginning of the relationship and her saying come back and make up a goodbye at least and yeah. it's this idea that you have to kind of come to peace and come to terms for yourself where you where this is going to end and the creation of a goodbye because you're not always going to get that and even if you do sometimes it's never satisfying yeah I think that the idea of closure doesn't actually exist as an entity people actually have I think it's more of this inescapable desire that people want to have and keep hoping that the next thing and the next thing and the next thing will give them closure I mean, even as far as grief goes, you know, I mean, being somebody who's, you know, experienced a lot of grief within the past year, you keep hoping that the next step will be closure or the next step will help you move on. But that's not how it works at all. I don't really think that closure is a thing that anybody really gets. No, because it's never, especially when it's fresh, when the wounds have are still open. It's never going to be the satisfying end-all, be-all. Right. And from what I understand, as far as the movie chronology goes, he is performing this procedure less than two weeks after they've broken up. Yeah. That's a lot in two weeks. It's a two-year relationship. Just completely destroyed and exploded within two weeks. Yeah. And then even from her perspective, she got the memory erasing procedure done first. Right. And it's, ah, it sucks. It's just that feeling sucks. That's why I think that it has to be within a two week period. Because at one point when he's complaining to his friends, he says, it's only been a week and she's seeing a new guy. So that means that she would have had to get the procedure done already for her to be with Patrick and to completely forget about him. Yeah. And then he his immediate response is, okay, I want to do it too. I want to resolve it. So if he if his response to it is that quick, that means that 
it had to be within yeah. a two week period. Yeah. It's also, it's so relatable that feeling because it hurts. That's how it feels. Like that's why I right. think this movie's genius because the, that's how it feels when Yuri just immediately cut off. Yeah. And you never get to have that last word, which even that last word itself, like we're saying is never going to be as satisfying as you think it's going to be, but to just all of a sudden you're nothing. And that's how you feel. You feel like you're nothing. Right. And we see more of that sort of retaliatory aggression in Joel when he finds out that she did this to him first. And he says, I can't believe you did this to me first. And then he's doing it more in retaliation to her doing it first rather than necessarily coming up with the idea himself to do it. No. Yeah. Yeah. But that's also why I think the he regrets it. Like, yeah, he there's that moment where it's like I is not only is her memories of her going, but mm-hmm. integral memories of him. Yeah, I feel like we could just keep talking about this movie, but let's get into some of the brass taxes. Are you, are you ready to move on? Yeah. Matter of okay. fact, I'd be comfortable leaving mm-hmm. the plot thread here and just. Yeah. You know, because there's there's still I would say one there's there's like one fifth of the movie left at this point, but it's very like especially I for know. people who haven't seen it. I think it's important that we maybe leave it here and let them go see it for themselves. I think so too. And there's also one very big plot twist, and we've talked about other plot twists before, but there's still a plot twist that we haven't touched on. And I think to feel the emotional weight of that plot twist, I don't want to give it up. Yeah, agreed. Okay. Um, so, I mean, like, what I always loved about Clementine, and I think that they show in this movie, is that she doesn't fit the definition of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl in the case that she flat out says multiple times, like, I don't want to be your dream girl. I don't want to be this person that you think is going to make life better. I'm fucked up, and I'm going to keep making bad choices. Yeah. So I like that she puts that all the way out in the front and they say it in the movie. It's, I think this movie kind of paints the reality of fetishizing somebody, you know, who's, you would consider like the alt girl. Like in the last episode, I talked about how, you know, it's this dream, this fetish where like, oh, the alt girl, she's different. And I'm going to, I'm going to date her. This is that reality where it's like, no, this is still an individual. This is a human being with complexities and emotions And she just happens to be, you know, have a lot of her own internal struggles and issues. And Mm -hmm. to diminish that as to make her out as like, oh, she's got the dyed hair. She's got the quirky style. It's diminishing to her character. And I think that's part of the flaw in Joel himself. And the movie doesn't shy from that either. Yeah, exactly. I think that now that I've watched it as as an adult, that Joel does have a little bit of a superiority sensation to Clementine which is exactly what we don't want our protagonist with a manic pixie dream girl to be feeling is that she is there to serve you make you a better person but you're also better than her yeah so I think that that flaw does I think that is what screws him over with their breakup it does and it's I think it's projection in that sense of superiority he's projecting his own insecurity onto her but is like oh but this is how you would behave right you do this this is also a very wet movie yeah there's a lot of water 
it's it's very wet um but that's also part of what i liked about it i love the beach you know i love the beach there's so much of like i feel like the beach is a character in this movie it is and even when she's in his memories and she says the eraser guys are coming hide me somewhere they won't find me and he just starts singing row 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 your boat and then he starts remembering like frolicking in the rain and then starts to pour rain inside their apartment i just love that yeah well even they lay on a frozen lake yeah they have he even says like i miss being bathed in a bath in a in a kitchen sink right the water rises at the beach house towards the end Mm-hmm. yeah water is huge and like i what it, what do you think that says Mm, I think that water has a lot of cleansing abilities. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what it's supposed to be. But also, it can come and go in ways, just yes. like love can. Yeah. It's also unpredictable, like you were saying. Because, like, yeah. they're sitting on a frozen lake, and in that moment, it seems stable. Right. But then as things are going haywire, you know, and the the memories being washed away, quite literally the water is rushing and taking over the scene. Yeah, and not giving away the end of the movie or continuing it any further, but I love when he's at the end of it and he's in a car with everything wishing past him in his mind. And inside the car, it took me a lot of years to realize this, but the car is filled with sand and he can't move. I Yeah. 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 He can't move. He's stuck. He has to continue forward with this process. Yeah, that's true. And the sand is holding him down. So, I just love this movie. It's a fantastic movie. We could talk all day about it, but... Yeah. Um, in Halsey's latest album, Manic, she actually references this movie. Really? Yeah. At the end of the first song, which isn't even a full song, it's like an introductory... It ends with an audio recording of Clementine saying, people think I'm going to change them or save their lives, but I'm just a fucked up girl looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. She includes that in the end of the first song, and then it leads into the second song called Clementine. Love the balcony, because I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone. I just need everyone in the That and, is beautiful. And the audio to that song kind of plays off of John Bryan's original score. That's awesome. Yeah, so clearly the, that movie's influenced her too. And I, I just appreciate those little details when people refer back to Eternal Sunshine. I think there's a really good way to do it. I think there's also a really bad way to do it. Like Circus Survive has a song called Meet Me in Montauk. And it's like, okay, but what does this actually have to do with anything? It means they saw the movie and they want to talk about it. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, they don't even want to talk about it. They just say, we saw the movie. Yeah, and be like, oh, we'll always have Montauk. And it's like, no. <laughs> Please love me, alt girl who shows up at my concerts. just as you Exactly. 
I think that's what I like about the Halsey version differently. It's much more nuanced, and I think she really hits a certain finesse of the audio that is not used in Circus Survives Mimi and Montauk. Let's ask the question. I'm going to ask you first. Yes, please ask me the question. We've kind of talked about this, but we also have varying opinions on it. Yeah. Tom. Yes. Do you think that this movie, do you think it would be successful today? I think it would, but I thought what was interesting is I watched some of the deleted scenes. And in the deleted scenes, we see Naomi. Right. And we learn there might be more to it like we learn that there's potential he's still potentially with naomi when he meets clementine in montauk and that he left her for clementine and i think the difference in that is the if you incorporate the deleted scenes it makes it less of a romance movie and makes it more of it, it kind of because it's harder to sympathize when we directly see the face. We see Naomi, we see who she is, and we see her criticize him when she realizes that he's leaving her. Right. And I think that in today's, especially when we look at things more critically and maybe through different perspectives, I think that if this were made today, it might be like, I'm, I hate using the term, but it would some people would consider it like more of a mumblecore movie. And they probably would include more of the scenes of Naomi. Because I think what it does is it it paints more of the internal struggle. But it but the issue then is that it becomes distracting and veers away from the romance aspect of it. Right. And makes it more of a kind of a personal... It also takes away from the dream elements because it has too much grounded in reality. What is interesting about the feature of Naomi is that it becomes very clear when we look at the film in order of events, he thinks back to Naomi because once that a memory is entirely erased of Clementine, the only, the last remnants of comfort he has is with Naomi. And you see how that kind of plays out and fails. Hmm. Yeah. So I think, I mean, there is a, a large part of me that is like, nope, this movie is fine the way it is. And I know that that's biased, but also after watching it, I, I still think you could, you know, sell it in theaters today, well, sell it on streaming today as is, I think it still holds. And I think out of all of these movies, dare I say it, I think will hold out the longest. Yeah, I think so too. But I I do think that in regards to having Naomi, I, I think you're right. I think it would be a different movie. I know that Ellen Pompeo played Naomi and I've seen the scenes where I think they have their breakup in Union Square. Yeah. And I think that then it doesn't make it a movie about this relationship and look at these two equal parts. I think then it becomes Joel's narrative. Yeah, actually, you know what? I I think I get what you're saying. It would make it too much Joel's narrative. And I think it's probably for the best that it wasn't included. Right. Like, I think it would still be a good movie. But I think what keeps the focus on love and an examination and dissemination of relationships is that it's about these two. And of course, Patrick plays a part in it, but Patrick is such a bizarre case. Yeah. You know, he's such an anomaly that it's still, it, it brings in the jealousy and the newness to seeing the person you love in a new relationship. But I think 
adding Naomi to it just adds too many characters and takes attention away from the core of the relationship. You know what? That's fair. I can agree to that. No, I was just going to say also, I think at the time that this movie came out, in protection of Naomi, I think if they just included those scenes with her sort of ragging on Joel and getting mad at him at their breakup, I think people would just characterize her as a bitch. And I don't think that that would be fair to her. That is true. And that is fair. Yeah. In regards to Naomi, who is a character who never made it to the final cut of this movie, I want to protect her from those 2004 fans who would just think that she's being a bitch. And a thought that I had, because the way I was talking about it is that it adds more of a complexity to Joel's guilt. I think we... We've come to a good agreement. It, it may, it's better maybe left on the editing floor, but a movie we cover at the end of the series does introduce that character and does play it pretty well. Who are you referring Knives to? Knives Chow from Scott Pilgrim vs. Ah, aha. Okay, I was like trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, because that, that, she's kind of that character. I mean, the difference being Knives Chow was more of like a short-term distraction, and that's still... I don't like saying that because she's a character and she has her own agency, but... I love Knives Chow. Yeah, but like, because with the Naomi, Naomi, they, we are in... It's implied they were together for years, Joel and Naomi. Right. But with Knives Chow, she kind of plays that character of like, here's somebody that the main ta- you know, ca- main character is with, but kind of fucks over. And we have to deal... With, like, the movie doesn't just pretend it didn't happen. And neither does this movie. Eternal Sunshine does not like Naomi is still a presence, and that Naomi guilt is still there. Is a presence, but you can tell even with the way that their friends act, and clearly they have enough of an experience with Clementine that they receive that letter that says not to mention her relationship with Joel to her in the future. But at the end of the movie, when they have their first experience together, when they first meet. His friend, played by Jane Addams, says, I heard, I saw you talking to someone pretty. It's not like she was like, what were you doing? Why were you talking to somebody else? So yeah. all lines of communication are pointing Joel towards Clementine. Yeah. And away from Naomi. Yes. And that could be a potential bad, you know, another. Because that's the thing, too, is it's like if you're in one toxic relationship and that situation you haven't sorted through you haven't fixed those issues those are unfortunately carryovers into the next one right so that could be another plot element so but we'll talk more about scott pilgrim when we get to scott Pilgrim. yeah yeah the the end of our manic pixie dream girl run yes yeah i'm i'm very interested in your response to elizabeth town when you watch it Oh, <laughs> I'm ready to watch it. <laughs> because we've hit the peak. This is, to me, the peak of this miniseries. And then we are going to go right into the, I would say, sort of the baby of what Clementine and what Sam created into Kirsten Dunst's character in Elizabethtown. Also, I bought a shirt. Uh in regards to Judy Greer's character from Elizabethtown, and I'm going to wear that shirt when we record our Elizabethtown episode. Excellent. So get ready, guys. Elizabethtown is next. Elizabethtown. Yep.
did you want to put a song on the list or not? I don't think so for this movie. And I guess this part that I'm about to say, you could include it in the sure. podcast. This this album, this music hits a little different than okay. a lot of these other albums. I don't think that the Eternal Sunshine album, although it's sin like musically beautiful and fits the movie, all of the other albums from this miniseries became pretty solid hits. Yes. And you can listen to them like you are making an active choice to listen to a really good album. The music that John Bryan created and the song that Beck covered, I feel like is more of a soundtrack to thinking and reminiscing rather than listening to an album of songs. Yeah. Because the little things that John Bryan does, these sort of little whimsical and lush moments in the music, I think are more for when you are being pensive and thoughtful rather than I'm going to listen to the shins. That's fair. I agree with that. Or I'm going to listen to the Smiths or the Scott Pilgrim album. That's yeah. Fair. And it, it didn't hit like the billboard the same way that the other albums did. I could see that. Yeah. So I think this one's a little different. All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. That is the episode on eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Be sure to watch uh, Elizabeth Town for next week's episode. And with that, please be sure to follow us on Instagram. Courtney, do you remember the Instagram handle? Yes, our Instagram handle is at remember the zero zeros podcast. And go check it out if you want to see some more interactive content and the animated clips of future episodes. Yes, remember, tune in for the Zoomer correspondence. Yes, we love asking our Gen Z friends what they think of the things from our childhood to make us feel equally old and more knowledgeable at the exact same time. Yep, the Zoomers are going to save the world, guys. Teenagers are going to save the world. <laughs> yes, you can find us on Spotify and hopefully by now iTunes. <laughs> Here's the hoping. Podbeam. We're going to break with- into the iTunes click. We're doing it, guys. We're doing it for you iTunes loyalists who can't figure out how to use Google Chrome. Or just don't want to. (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Peace. I walked out the door. There's no memory left. Come back and make up a goodbye, at least. Let's pretend we had one. Joel. I love you.